Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I chat with Jamie Nemesis and Drew Meredith of Waddle Partners Financial Planning. We talk about risk profiling and using that to set your strategic asset allocation and tactical asset allocation, how you can tilt your portfolio, hedge your portfolio, and generally build a portfolio statement and construct and manage your portfolio throughout market cycles. This is a fascinating chat because we reflect on some of the moves that the guys made during covid And also as we think about rising inflation or potential rising inflation and rising rates. It's a fascinating conversation and I'm sure the guys will be back to join me in the future. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Drew Meredith and Jamie Nemsis from Mortal Partners, my partners in crime for today's podcast episode. Thanks for joining me on the show. 
Drew, um, I know you've been unwell the last few days, mate, so I know you make any extra effort this Friday morning. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, and um, and Jamie, the second time on the podcast. I know. Drew and I have done a few, but um, you're looking good, mate. It's good to have you back. I'm looking good because this is audio only, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, today's podcast, we're going to cover um, basically how you guys think about risk profiles and then how that feeds into... Um, building a portfolio or constructing a portfolio from the top down. So um, that strategic asset allocation. And then how you tilt portfolios, because I know we've got some good examples to throw around, um, particularly coming out of COVID. Um, and just in general, I guess, um, you guys have been doing this long enough. So lots of value to add. Um, Drew, throw it over to you first, mate. Uh, straight in the deep end. Can you just explain, I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with like what a risk profile is. But how do you go about determining um, a risk profile when you meet a client or when you just come across an investor? Yeah, so I think it's probably one of the more complex parts of providing advice. You know, you a lot of people assume you answer a few questions and that's your risk profile. But I think anyone that stops there, it's not enough. It's an, it's an evolving issue. Um, we think really risk profiling is about finding out your tolerance to lose money almost <laughs> for lack of a better way of thinking about Definitely. it. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think like most things in finance, it's an imperfect science. So, you know, you start with a, we, we think we use what, what the best, the best of breed risk profiling software that tries to take into account behavioral, uh, you know, issues and biases that we have. That's a platform called uh, Finometrica, I think, Jamie. Um, but for us, it's about, understanding the objectives and also the person and their experiences over an extended period of time rather than just a once-off. Um, particularly, I mean, you, Jamie will probably explain that your risk profile changes in the middle of a in the middle of a crisis or in the middle of a bull market. Correct. Yeah, trying to ascertain uh, someone's real risk profile is incredibly hard and it starts with, you know, it's essentially about knowing them knowing their situation um, and knowing how they'll react. So the risk profile uh, tool is a great way to start, but it depends on their level of capital, their level of knowledge. And, you know, most people in an up market are bullish and most people in a down market are bearish. Um, So, you know, we constantly reassess risk profiles for clients. there's also a need as well. We've we come across a lot of clients that have a need, that being an income need in retirement, and they they have a, a limited, um, everyone has a limited amount of capital. It doesn't matter who you are. You've got a certain amount of capital. Now, if those two objectives don't match, then typically what you would need to do is run a portfolio that's more aggressive. But if you're, if, if, and that that's the issue, right? If you run a more aggressive portfolio mm. to achieve their objectives, but their risk profile is more conservative, what is the right answer? The right answer is spend less money, but most clients don't respond to that very well. So you know, um, it, it, it's it's a it's a constant and continual balance in terms of assessing clients' risks and attitude. And as Drew said, it changes, right? And you have to as an advisor, right? Like the risk. Um, kind of has to be the setting, right? In that instance, like where you've got competing priorities because surely you can't, well, I, I would think you can't really move them further up the risk curve um, for the sake of reaching those goals or like how do you, what are some of the things that you would do or implement 
to kind of have that trade-off with clients, that discussion. There's an important thing that we've gone through recently, which is having informed consent. So if you are suggesting someone needs to take more risk to achieve their objectives, they have to be completely understand the additional risk that they're taking on, what their potential losses are, um, rather than yeah, just suggesting something that forget don't don't challenge their their objectives and just suggest something that's a higher risk because in in theory it will give them a higher return. Um, so it's easy. It's so easy to lose focus for investors. And when we talk investors, Drew and I talk investors, we typically talk to investors plus 50 and we typically deal with those clients until they pass away, right? So they typically have a pool of capital. We're not talking about accumulators right at the moment. And that, that's a majority of our client base. And the way that people see their portfolios and it, most people see their portfolios is just a number on the at the bottom you know we write fantastic quarterly reports that, that that go through and we can talk about what it goes through but you know they're they're 25 to 30 pages and the last page has their total valuation of their portfolio and most people flip to the last page and then they said yeah read it back to front <laughs> you know, and they says it was it higher or lower than last quarter and if it was higher they put it away and don't read it if it's lower they probably call us up and go well what's going on you know, um, so they question the one the one investment has gone down as well. <laughs> so, so what you can do for clients that are a little bit more nervy is get them to focus on different things. And one of the things we've been doing for a long time now, Drew, is getting clients to, especially in retirement, is focus on what the portfolio might produce as income compared to what they need, and then focus on how many years of cash reserves do they need to hold to feel comfortable. You know, so if they want uh, $80,000 and the portfolio um, produces 60000 there's a $20,000 short shortfall, say that's a $30,000 shortfall, and uh, in a market downturn, that might fall to a $40,000 hole, then if we hold five years worth of that, do they feel comfortable? Or 10 years worth of that, do they feel more comfortable? And then get them to focus on different things rather than the last page of the report. And if you can yeah. say we're always holding, you know, five to seven years worth of cash or the cash gap, then typically they'll allow a, a more risky, a, no, without, they're happy to take a little bit more risk because they're yeah. focused on a different thing. Do you find when clients come to you, um, because I, I normally deal with accumulators, right? And you guys um, deal with both. Um, do you find when clients come to you and they're, you know, closing in on retirement or just in retirement they've got these large balances do you find they've thought that way do you think they um that do you think that they put that cash aside knowing that this is going to cover me for x number of years or you know is it really just kind of all over the place they tend to be more conservative than what even they think so part of the risk profiling questionnaire we use ask them what they think their score would be on a scale of zero to a hundred and pretty much every single one, uh, their result is more conservative than what they think it is. Um, oh, right. And I think we've, we've studied behavioural uh, finance recently too, and I think loss aversion, um, which is what you're talking about, is that they're more afraid of losing money than they are of missing out on returns generally. So it's it almost starts with a negative capital protection footing. Mm. I mean, we're totally off track, but that's exactly right. Most clients come with a portfolio that is a lot, lot more risky than their risk profile, um, but they don't perceive it to be that risky. Um, and then they really don't know the performance of their portfolio 
over the last seven years. So, yeah. you know, they've, they've had different pots of money come in, rollers of superannuation, inheritances, you know, retirement benefits, and they can't tell you that they average a 5% return or a 7% return or a yeah, 4% return. So our job is to, you know, find where they're comfortable that achieves their objectives and educate them to the degree that they need educated education so some people will yep. come and they'll already get it right some totally understand that others um don't sometimes that re-education has to happen in crises or when one partner dies but you know it, it's essentially a process that we go through with each each group you know what's your risk profile what's your tolerance to risk watch how they act in in market downturns and we're going to talk about market downturns later um yeah you know, that kind of anxiety builds if you don't do anything in a market downturn um and it evaporates if you actually do something even if you're buying something you know so i think the industry has got too focused on the portfolio as the outcome so you can see it major funds everywhere you basically you answer all these questions you either end up in a conservative balanced or a growth option um but it's as you can tell from the discussion it's far more nuanced than you know fitting everyone into two or three buckets um yeah it's more about one, what returns do you need? You know, if, if you've got $15 million and you only need 1% from term deposits, well, what's why would we tell you to put in anything but term deposits? But not many people have $15 million and term deposits at 1% isn't a lot yeah. uh, either. So, you know, you've got gradual risk-taking from that point onwards, but it's important to match that up with what you're seeking. Otherwise, when volatility does come and you're more exposed than you probably should have been, um, that's when bad decisions or emotional decisions are made. Speaking, so speaking of like the interplay between risk profiles and um, SAA or strategic asset allocation, um, I know you guys, because you guys have hundreds of clients, right? Um, so you go about effectively building these buckets. Um, Jamie, you and I talked yesterday about how you think about portfolio construction, taking the kind of the best of breed in each of the buckets um, and then you kind of mix and match. Can you just give us like the overview of the the SAA approach and how you think about those buckets? Well, it's really important you have a framework in all this. So the framework that we're using is called strategic asset allocation and essentially it's a process of splitting your investments into two so that would be your what we call your growth assets and the other would be your defensive assets in defensive assets we have three subcategories that being cash e.g no market volatility available all the time um, or available within a week and then you've got fixed income uh, which essentially provides exposure to the bond market, uh, typically longer duration and provides income. And uh, the third category is something called defensive alternatives, which has got that uh, non-market, non-market correlated risk, typically produ- produces income, um, not a lot of volatility. So when we go through risk profiling, process will determine how much in the defensive component of one's portfolio um, and then we have growth assets and our growth asset categories and these slightly change depending on which advisors you use but our categories is Australian shares international shares and then uh, growth alternatives so <clears throat> the um, some some advisors would have 
property at at the bottom there but we put them all in growth alternatives so in each category um then we decide what investments go into to each category uh, each category has got a number beside it so we might say hey your defensive assets are 30 percent, and that's broken up into five percent cash if that's the right number for the client and then uh, 15 percent in fixed income and defense and defensive vaults might be 10 and we use that as a guide of where a portfolio sits every time we review it each quarter or each um each half year and then anything that's outside plus or negative um you know soft is kind of two and a half percent but five percent we would automatically be rebalancing it back or we automatically we would be recommending we balance it back we also run a tactical asset allocation, which is kind of strategic, is more or less a 15 to 20 year view. Tactical asset allocation is if you had a one to three year view on something. So maybe yeah. at the moment, um, and I think this was on the agenda to talk about, if you were fundamentally worried about higher rates because of inflation, then you'd you wouldn't want too much in your fixed income component, which had long duration. So you might take, you know, you might take 10% or of the allocation that was in fixed income and put it into your defensive alts where you don't have duration risk. So if you get higher rates, then you're not essentially going to lose capital. So you've got, your, you've got your SAA, then TAA. So what would be... Defensive alts, it kind of sounds like this um, mysterious bucket to a lot of people that don't really know about it. What would be an example of a defensive alt uh, in terms of product or in terms of, you know, asset class? Just any example would help. We're probably a bit more conservative. I know a lot of groups, maybe, who knows who it is. Um, They basically put anything that is mortgage-like. So, you know, a, a term deposit is a form of debt. Uh, to a bank. So anything that's similar to that, it could be property-backed debt, mortgage-backed debt, corporate loans to corporates. Um, There's some uh, different different rating levels of different bonds as well. Um, So a lot of people would put them just straight into the fixed interest bucket, but we think it's important to differentiate between there are slightly different risk levels there. Um, Yes, a perfect example would be corporate bonds. Mm. So like Australian corporate bonds or... International as well. Yeah, primarily, um, primarily, yeah, Australian. But really, you can include anything in there that isn't isn't a triple ha- rated government government debt, basically. Yeah, typically in that bucket, they would be floating rate versus fixed rate. We would have things like gold and credit and absolute return funds, and generally, the things that fit in there have to meet you know a, a kind of another framework, and that framework would be around volatility so you want the volatility to be low and you want the drawdown from top to bottom e.g the highest the values being to what it could fall in a crash to be kind of limited as well we we roughly mm. maximum we'll ever go in investments is 10 and 10 at 10 being vol that's monthly vol um and uh 10% from top to bottom so typically okay. they're a lot better than that and typically they're providing some kind of yield um to the defensive bucket uh less correlated so the key with the alternatives buckets is that they're not they don't move the same way that the fixed income and the equity buckets do so you think fixed income it's usually full of government bonds that are fixed rate 
long-term 7, 10, 15 year government debt. So if interest rates rise, they'll perform poorly. This bucket is really talking about if interest rates rise, they'll perform, they won't be impacted basically. If that makes mm. sense. Yeah, it does. How about, so how did that bucket for you guys react during COVID? Because I know like, I don't know if um, my hybrids fit into this bucket as well, but um, you know, there was a fair bit of volatility there that we saw during COVID. Um, how did that, how did that kind of fare? Um, Let's talk about this rebalance. So the re, I think it feeds really well if we talk about rebalancing, right? So the concept of rebalancing is always uh, really simply you're, you, when you rebalance, you say your equities has run, have run really well, you're selling things at a profit. And typically you're recycling them into other categories that haven't done as well, right? So it's you know, selling high and buying low, essentially what the rebalancing process is. And it's incredibly important to rebalance your portfolio. And there's lots of lots of articles about rebalancing um, on a regular basis. Six monthly seems enough. Um, uh, 12, 12 monthly, not, not quite enough. But to maximize you know risk adjusted returns the thing that drew and i have learned over you know um i'm 45 turning 46 so 25 years i've been doing this is the rebalance is even more important is the most important in a crisis so most advisors would not go to their client when the client is fearing most and saying this is awesome we should sell all the assets that haven't fallen and buy all the assets that have fallen which is fundamentally what rebalancing is, right? It's a nicer term, rebalancing. So rebalancing, and we did it in 2008 and we did it last March or March, April, the the confidence to go and rebalance where you're just, you know, you're uh, selling things that haven't fallen and you're buying things that have, have fallen. Um, so then I think that's, we, we then can talk about what we did. Um, and this is not just about Waddle sure. Partners. We're a bit different because we got a, we kind of look at the world from a top-down perspective, but also bottom-up. So those actions that we did in our portfolio, do you want to talk about them, Drew? Um, yeah, I think in you know relating it back to the defensive alternatives question, we actually didn't have a lot in there at the time. Um, and there were one or two investments, uh, and we were very much more so in the fixed interest and and government bonds given what the conditions look like um you know central banks were reducing rates and implementing qe um and the result was uh, similar to to the defensive alternatives there's this growth alternatives bucket that also has a preference to or requirement that you don't lose money when when uh markets fall so what we did in about march or april March, April and July last year was identify that the equity component had fallen significantly. So if you looked at an asset allocation, it was clear. The alternatives had either stayed the same or gone up and the bonds had generally gone up, fixed interest had generally gone up as well. Um, so tactically sold portion of those assets. I think it was about only about 5 to 10% of the portfolio, Jamie. Yep. Um, and allocated it. So on the top level, took 5-10% from those, allocated it into global uh, equities, domestic equities, and actually defensive alternatives, so credit, because all three of them sold off um, uh, 
credit less so, but equity significantly, as everyone knows, you know, it's no surprise there. Mm. Um, we, we didn't do it because we thought markets were going to recover in six weeks or eight weeks like they did. Uh, it certainly helped, but um, we can go to the, the micro level as so well. So that's like that. top down and then from a bottom up, we, you know, in our preference share, that's essentially how we get a lot of the fixed income a portion of our portfolio, preference shares listed, we directly buy them. We saw there was um, a mispricing, what we thought was a mispricing of anything that had a long duration preference share was being valued down 10 or 15% from its par value, where the like short five or six year maturity. Yeah, so six years to mature, they, they, they were trading at a big discount because there was lots of uncertainty. We had a lot of um, short-term preference shares, kind of preference that were maturing in the next one to kind of two and a half years, and even that they traded down a little bit, not to the same degree as the longer duration preference shares. So we just sw- simply switched them, you know, sold the short, bought the long. Now that's really unusual for a financial planner to get into that detail. The result was they all trade pretty much back at par or both post par. Above par now, yeah. Yeah. So you know, from a client's perspective rather than a, a a two-year preference share going from 97 dollars to a to, to 100 we've been able to sell at 97 buy something at 88 or 90 and it's gone back to 100 so there you know that was a, a move um that was kind of a decision at the time and we saw the opportunity we also have a currency um policy uh internally and we've had this for a long period of time and mm. that just says that we hedge um, currency when it's uh, two um, standard deviations from long-term mean, which basically means currency is about 73 cents is long-term mean. So if you're Mm. two standard deviations away, we hedge it up or we unhedge it. So currency dropped to 55.5 cents. And because it's not a – it's – it's it's a policy. It's it's not a decision. We just said, okay, we're, we've committed to this for the last twenty years. It works, so let's hedge everything up we could. So obviously added enormous value. So in terms of what we did, it wasn't a lot. It was three or four movements, but the value that that created for clients is substantial. You know, um, mm. how did you get? How did you hedge? So how did you hedge? You just switch into the hedged products, or yeah, so like hedge funds, hedge versions of funds. and S and P five hundred ETF switching from unhedged to hedged. Um, most managed funds that aren't some are actively hedged. Well, obviously, you can't control those, but anything that had a hedged option, we basically just switched it in the middle of the. You know, I think the dollar was at sixty cents or something. Um, uh, what are the types of? And sorry, Jamie, you mentioned the types of preference shares. You mentioned preference shares that you bought directly before. What what, what would be an example of the preference shares that? Uh, they're, they're, we typically only buy bank preference shares um, because yeah, right. bank preference shares have got APRA looking at the capital adequacy of the underlying company. So if you buy a corporate preference share, they only have to announce to the ASX twice a year and, you know, who, yeah, who right. knows. So where it's constantly monitored if it's a bank. So we only hold, mainly we only hold bank preference shares. So in each bank, you know, top four and they 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 essentially have a whole series of them so you can pick your series and your maturity um and your credit rating clear arbitrage i think we'd ever seen but that's what happens in a crisis right when markets go to crisis you have to somehow 
have a framework that you can go to a client and say, okay, this is a great time to rebalance and then put a set of recommendations to them. If they saw it one by one, they might not do it. But this concept of rebalancing in crises is really, crises really work. And I think that's, we, we kind of, there's a guy called Justin Pascoe that used to be the CEO, a CIO of VFMC and now he's a head of equities at um, Australian Equity, Australian Super. And he's an incredibly smart guy. And I saw him present once and he talked about never um, understanding the embedded call option that cash or non-market um, investments have. And the example would be if you had managed money for the last 20 years and you had it in cash for the 20 years apart from big market corrections and you just bought the, you know, the, say the, the awards and you held them for, held it for two years and then put it back in cash and you did the same, put it back in the cash. So over the 20 years, you would only have uh, your money exposed to equities for um, two times uh, and for four years out of the 20 then and you picked up the cash rate for the whole period your portfolio return would be substantial you know it would be probably better than any other pension fund around over that period of time and you've only held market exposure so understanding that cash does more than just produce you know, mm. a little bit of income all these things that we hold, defensive alts and fixed income, hold a different role in the portfolio. And the role is really this embedded call option to buy cheap stuff. And that extends to when you get crisis like last year, um, where you, you see every corporate ASX listed company raise capital. Now, they seem to raise capital at the most ridiculous times and they raise it at substantial discounts. Now, when that happens, you if you're an active investor, you want to be able to have cash to buy all these things that go on sale. And we're not talking about small companies. We're not talking about micro companies. We're talking about ASX 50, ASX 100 leaders. All the banks raise capital at you know, pretty close to the bottom. So if you don't have cash or things you can sell and, and buy these opportunities, you miss out on a great op- opportunity to you know, to, to, to maximise your long-term returns. For us, we we start with, we call it an investment policy or an investment policy statement that kind of has driven every pension fund, every family office, every, maybe not hedge funds, but every successful investor basically does a framework to help make decisions. So when we speak with clients, we build that for them as the first kind of discussion point and you're negotiating the key points about it. It talks about amount of positions in your portfolio, the policy on hedging, even things like your responsible investment views or your ethical preferences, and then it and guides the decisions that happen on a quarterly basis or in crisis. So, you know, you're not just sitting there making it up in the middle of a crisis, you, you're prepared and you have a, a strategy to deal with it. Um, and then you go back to amend it, right? If you're not sure, if something's gone wrong, go back and amend your investment strategy. It only has to be you know, half a dozen pages, if that. But, you know, it's just a constant learning of how to be a better investor is yeah. this main document called Investor, you know, uh, IPS, Investor Policy. Every, every investor, pretty much every person we meet lacks that structure or even having any mm. strategy at all. Every portfolio, I mean, probably a lot of advisors, every portfolio looks pretty similar. Um, you know, 
all the mix of popular things, but no actual structure. You know, why did you add this? Why have you got a random credit strategy? Why have you got, there's no overall strategy involved. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. Um, I, I can't imagine, like we tend to write down our rules for investing like as a, you know, stock picker or equities focused guy. I We have these vast checklists and rules and filters, whatever, to buy shares and to focus on quality and blah, blah, blah. But then um, coming back, like relating that back to the personal finance strategy overall, um, I don't know many investors that actually adopt like an investment policy statement, uh, write that down and have these re- rules written in advance. Um, and there's some clear, um, like there's a clear value prop there, right? Like you just, that you just me- uh, mentioned, um, having those rules in advance is most important. And Jamie, to your point about like that in, um, embedded call option in cash, that's something that took me a while to kind of wrap my head around as an investor, because um, you just see interest rates falling, right? And you think of opportunity cost and you think, geez, this sucks. Um, but that's fascinating, right? I guess the, the, I guess the key there is, um, one of the things that, one of the questions people might have is, well, you guys made these, these great calls during COVID. Um, and then you cited that the the other investor who, who brought up the study over 20 years, timing matters, right? Like how do you determine you've got two standard deviations for FX to go hedge or unhedge. How do you decide when, you would take that cash off the sidelines. Like, are there predetermined rules that you guys use for that? Is there a framework for that? We, at the moment, so we believe in quarterly rebalancing. So we do quarterly reviews and then in crises. So, you know, as soon as you see those yeah. allocations breaking, you know, so if you've said 30% in Aussie shares and it's down to 22 and a half or 21, then, you know, it, it's a good indicator. You're not going to get timing 100% right ever. Um, but, you know, you can definitely um, put things in place that helps your return. Um, timing is, yeah. You, uh, timing last time, last in March uh, and April. And timing is that horrible word, but it's really just being tactical. Um, it worked because as soon as we kind of, we didn't even get all the money in, markets took off, right? Um, in 2007, 2008, that wasn't the case. I think we rebalanced and it went down further. And that's that's harder. You know, you rebalance and then markets go down another 20%. And you go, oh, I thought 4,500 was pretty good for the all odds and it's down at 3.2. Yeah. And that's where patience and, you know, um, comes into it. Investing and, and probably... As advisors, we're one step back than we used to be. We used to be really, really active. We'd know when share prices went up and down and, you know, every announcement on the market and we're probably one back from that now. Um, Well, I am definitely. And I think that has made me a better advisor because you're going, well, what's the opportunity set here in this market and what looks hot and where should I allocate money versus, you know, NAB's down 42 cents. I wonder what's happening there. Are they going to cut their dividend? You know, in a portfolio context, the bigger top-down moves typically add a lot more value than, the, you know, a little bit in this and a little bit in that for, for, for most investors. And I think a lot of the, the academic literature backs it up, right? But the portfolio management the SAA is, as an explanatory um, factor, is so much more powerful than the security selection, right? 
It's all. Yeah. It's more about being exposed and staying exposed. So we saw last year, if you sold anything, you cap you capitalize losses and you never recovered. So yeah, SAA is basically a tool to make sure you don't sell when crises happen, um, or you're not selling your, your growth component because the power is from the SAA, but making sure you're always exposed to the asset classes that are that are growing. Mm. Mm. I think a lot so, of um, a lot of um, so when you do talk about portfolio build, um, there's a lot of uns and these are our peers, but you know there's a lot of unsophisticated approaches to portfolio build, um, and that's typically when you get. Um, uh, say when we allocate our international share allocation, we have two managers up the top that manage the large cap exposure globally. They're both active. So we're a, a house that believes in active investing, adding value, and they have both done that. And then we have a mid cap. We go to mid cap manager, a, a, a small cap manager, and then we have a tilt to Asia. And then if you looked at the overlap of stocks that you're owning, it's very, very minor. And if you look at the the the, the five or so portfolio managers, they definitely they definitely have different mindsets and they approach it from a different perspective. So if, that, that's that, how we that, do that means it. meeting the fund managers and actually understanding what they do, right? Sure. Yeah. If you don't know, like we, we get paid a, a decent fee to provide advice to our clients, so we take the role on of understanding that fund manager um, as closely and precisely as possible. Sure, we get all the research right, but that doesn't really help us. That's outsourcing the obligation that we have, which is a fiduciary obligation to the client to know the investments. So we want to know the portfolio manager. We want to know what they're doing. We want to talk to them. We use, you know, we would use, say, a Morningstar Direct to make sure all their holdings, there's no overlap. And, and a lot of you know, a lot of exposure last year, you know, and um, we've seen portfolios and they're exposed to three three um, fund managers and they're all done phenomenally well. But if you pulled off the lid, they're all exposed to Tesla, you know, and they're all overweight to Tesla and they're all 10 to 12% of Tesla and they all did fantastically well. But that that's not really, you just needed one of them, right? Did you really need just to have one and buy three times the amount. There's no point in spreading your investment and saying, hey, I'm diversified over managers and I've got three different managers and they're all growthy. They're all buying the same stocks just in different portions. And mm. we see that. Uh, honestly, we see it 80% of the time when, when portfolios come in. They go, oh, we're, we're really happy with these. What's the point? You know. Um, and a lot of times you can go and buy the S&P 500 index fund for, you know, 10 bips and you're doing the same thing so so that naive diversification is the is the word isn't it similar to someone will come in and say i got all four banks that means i'm well diversified across the banking sector yeah market risk specific risk yeah all that fun stuff um gents i feel like this is a really good primer on portfolio construction just covering off like the absolute essentials maybe you guys can come back next month and we can talk more specifics around maybe different different funds. You know, something we could talk about is like rising rates, um, how you use that defensive alts bucket, some of the manager questions and, and interviews you do with them because I know you guys are meeting them like every day. I feel like every day I walk in the office, Jamie's uh, in an interview with a, a manager. Drew's writing something about it, uh, a manager too. So um, I think this is a really good primer. 
So if people want to find out more about you guys, head to the Waddle Partners website, right? Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah, go there and um, uh, give us a call. We're always, as you can see, we both chat all day, every day. So <laughs> the easiest way is you know, just give us a call and we're happy to have, have a chat. Sure. Some good videos and podcasts on there we can plug, I think. Yeah, yeah, there are too. Yeah, I'll put I'll put links in the show notes to the the podcast you guys are doing. I'm interviewing fundies as well, so occasionally you guys go live as well, which um, I'm told is I have it on good authority is a is a, is a spectacle. So, uh, <laughs> the word spectacles, right? Yeah, it's definitely. Spectacle. <laughs> no, great. All right, Jamie, uh, Jamie Nemsis and Andrew Meredith from Water Partners. Thanks for taking the time out to join me on the show today. Thank you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.